Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Prose is made for people not hair and skin types, personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I used the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Chapter 33, The Death Eaters. Voldemort looked away from Harry and began examining his own body. His hands were like large, pale spiders. His long, white fingers caressed his own chest, his arms, his face. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, our Every Flavor Bean conversation today is inspired by Wormtail's, I would say, injury in this chapter. Yeah. It's an injury. He gets injured. He got injured in the last chapter, technically, but he is dealing with the effects of this injury. Sure. And so you and I thought we would tell some injury stories from our own lives. Childhood? Lives. I've injured myself more recently than childhood. (laughs) Mine will come from childhood. You can listen to that conversation at patreon.com slash Harry Potter Sacred Text. And we want to let everybody know that today is the last day to register for camp. It's the last day. This is your last chance. You can still register for camp. You can do that at notsorryworks.com. And I have a new class, Matt. I am going to be doing sacred reading practices on Sunday nights. Everybody join me. We're going to do some Lectios together just with Harry Potter. We're going to work our way through the chapters. And you can find out more about that at notsorryworks.com. And then, of course, we have our Harry Potter pilgrimage this late summer, early fall. And you can find out about that at readingandwalkingwith.com. And everyone, please remember to review us on Apple Podcasts. 
And also you can subscribe for ad-free episodes there. Matt, it's your turn to tell a story, and this week's theme is invisibility. I am so excited. What story do you have? So when I was a student at Harvard Divinity School as a master's student, I was training to become a minister. And one of the great things about HDS is that we require students to take classes in a broad range of religions, not just necessarily the one that they're most interested in or the one in which they're training to lead people. And so I took a class on uh, Buddhism with a Zen Buddhist teacher who has since died named uh, Bernie Glassman. And Bernie Glassman is a really interesting teacher. He practiced Zen Buddhism for a long time, but he got very involved in New York City in working with unhoused people and doing Buddhist work and Buddhist ministry with folks in that sort of setting. He really gave his attention to marginalized folks, working with people who were formerly incarcerated, working with unhoused people and so forth. And he came as a visiting professor to Harvard to teach a class on Buddhism. And so I took this class with him and it was a great class. But one of the things, one of the requirements in the class is he asked students to do a street retreat. A street retreat was a thing that he did with many of his students. And what he did is he invited us to go spend a day in downtown Boston among unhoused people and sort of living or spending the day alongside them. Now, other street retreats he had, he would do it for two or three days or even for a week. He asked us just to do it for about 16 hours or whatever. So we got there early in the morning and went late at night. He asked us to not change our clothes or shower for a couple days before we went. And honestly, like I have some ambivalence about this practice, to be clear, but it was a requirement for the course. And, you know, I, I did it. And one of the things that was interesting about invisibility is that I my sense is that he was asking us to do things like not change our clothes and not shave for a few days so that we would be less conspicuous when we were in the soup kitchen line or sitting on, on the street and panhandling and that kind of thing. What's interesting is that I think a lot of that was unnecessary because we were no less conspicuous to people who were unhoused. They saw us a mile away. They knew that we were not unhoused. And in some ways, like the performance of going through the soup kitchen lines with them, trying to start conversations with them at the lunch table, hanging out with them through the day felt very forced and awkward and sometimes uncomfortable. And also like, you know, as I said, I have some ambivalence, highly privileged, like, like, oh, I'm choosing to be here so I can spiritually grow from this experience, which was not the experience that those other people were necessarily having. And so, you know, we went through these practices of trying to make ourselves invisible to other unhoused people to make ourselves blend in, not be so conspicuous. And that was a big failure. <laughs> that, didn't, that didn't really go anywhere. One thing that I really noticed from that day is that we were super invisible to other people in downtown Boston, like sitting on the on the sidewalk or moving through the city, especially hanging around near other people who were homeless, people going about their day in Boston who were working or working in the financial district or whatever, did not see us. I mean, they saw us and then did not see us. They knew we were there, but did not look closely enough to recognize that obviously I was a person who was pretending to, to be in this situation. Other people were, that was just, it was just they paid no attention to us. And we really did, I really did feel invisible in that sense. So I felt super visible to the other people, the unhoused people who I was hanging out with, and super invisible to anybody else in downtown Boston. And maybe just think about the category of being seen or not being seen, like how people see you, how you fit in, how you become visible to others, how you become invisible to others, what people are willing to see, what they're not willing to see. I think that one of the things that Bernie Glassman was trying to do was get us to try to think about 
how we are seen by others, how we situate ourselves in different places, what feelings that stirs up for us. But for me, what I really thought about throughout the day and in reflection as well was just sort of like how trying not to be seen, I was so obviously seen despite my best efforts. And then, you know, panhandling with these folks, hoping to be seen, I was not seen at all by people going about their day in in Boston. So, yeah, I, I, I wanted to tell the story just because invisibility is so much about what we choose to see and what we can't help but reveal about ourselves to others. Matt, that's such an interesting story. And I think that Harry has this strange hypervisibility and total invisibility experience at this grave site, right? Where Voldemort in this chapter, it's like a very big performance. And Harry is to some extent the guest of honor and yet is just sitting there and is a total prop. Yeah, and also how somehow those things go together, right? Like, yeah. the more I make myself obvious to you, the more one-dimensional I become to the other, and the other parts of me are right. not seen. Vanessa, it's time for our 30-second recap. And it's your turn to go first. Can I count you in? Okay. Three, two, one, go. So Voldemort gets re-embodied, and he's like, ooh, I'm sexy. And then he, he all he touches Wormtail's arm, and all of the Death Eaters come. And he, like, kind of takes attendance, and he goes around, and he's like, you were bad. You were bad. This person's missing, and I'll kill him. The Lestranges are in Azkaban, and they will be rewarded. And he tells his, like, baddie origin story. And then he's like, but Harry Potter, you um, – I'm going to prove to everybody that there's nothing special about you. And he crucios Harry. And then he's like, okay, let's battle. Oh, nice voice at the end. I like it. I wanted to remember the last line of the chapter because it's so drama, but I couldn't remember. (laughs) Okay, Matt, do your best. Okay. On your mark. Get set. Go. So uh, Voldemort's there and he's uh, touching himself because he realizes he has a bot and, and Wormtail is, is very upset still. And then uh, the Death Eaters come and he crucios Avery and then he's like, Lucius, why are you, you didn't do great and you all didn't do great. And he starts telling his origin story um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and he does his like Bond villain, here's everything that's going to happen. And then he's like, but now we have to fight and I crucio Harry and Harry, get up, get your wand, let's go. Now untie him, Wormtail, and give him back his wand. That's right. Vanessa, you know, you said something really interesting in response to my story about how, in a similar way to that, I felt both seen and unseen when I was in the financial district of Boston with these unhoused folks. You notice how Harry is both, like, there and not there to the Death Eaters. He's tied to the gravestone. He's watching Voldemort performed for all of the Death Eaters and tell his story to them. And in some ways, he's extraneous to that whole situation. He's a prop. Voldemort's doing his thing with his Death Eaters and kind of calling them back and disciplining them and all this creepy stuff that he wants to do with them, right? But in other ways, Harry is like the whole reason they're there. Like, by the time we get to the end of the chapter, it's like, and by the way, I brought you all here, Death Eaters, because I wanted to show you that I'm going to kill Harry Potter now, and his power was not more powerful than my power. Yeah, I just keep thinking of examples where this is true in our lives, right? You know, any sort of transactional conversation I'm thinking about, you know, at the DMV, RMV, right, where you are not a person to each other, right? Like the person sitting behind the counter is not a person to the customer and the customer is not really a person to the employee. And like there are all sorts of situations where this happens. And I think that 
often an incredibly painful thing is when you feel as though you should be visible to someone and you feel invisible to them. When you're at the doctor and you're in pain and, you know, because of insurance and a million other things, right? Like the doctor has to move you through really quickly and you're like, no, I want you to see me in my pain. And Mm -hmm. Harry is a child who, you know, I think this happens to children all the time, right? We move them through education systems. We ignore them, right, for understandable reasons. And yet it it can be so disempowering. And Harry is just being treated as this, like, kid who can wait, right? Where, like, when this other, you know, baddie speech is happening. And yet, to your point, he is the whole reason that they have gathered in this place in this way. Yeah, and I, I like what you said about his status as a child, which is part of what makes him invisible here, right? Is like they just don't care about him, right? And, you know, Voldemort's guilty of this in a way that will come back to bite him later, that he just disregards certain classes of people and classes of creatures as insignificant, as their magic as worthless or insubstantial enough for him to worry about, right? And that willingness to ignore children, to ignore house elves, to ignore other creatures is what actually leads to his downfall in the end. So their invisibility to him is a problem. But it's important, I think, again, that you bring up the question of like social standing as part of what makes us invisible. I mean, I think one of the things that made me hyper visible to the other unhoused people when I was in the soup kitchen line with them is because despite me not shaving for a few days, like there was a clear difference in social status and power that everyone could see, right? And it's also what, when I was sitting on the street and, you know, guys in suits and briefcases were walking by, they couldn't see me because there was also this difference of power that made me invisible to them. And, you know, what you said at the doctor's office, I couldn't help but thinking it's not just insurance companies, it's also race and gender and other things that make people's pain not visible, not legible to the medical profession. And that's stuff we need to pay attention to. But what's also hiding in this chapter is it has to be Harry. It's all for Harry. There's even this moment when Voldemort, you know, Voldemort has given everybody a lot of grief, kind of literally in this chapter, but he's but he's <laughs> trying to antagonize and terrorize these people who have come back to him. And one of the things he says about Wormtail is like, you know, I invented this spell and I needed the blood of a foe and I have lots of enemies. Wormtail said it could have been any of them. And he said, no, I knew it had to be this enemy. Only this child could be the one who could resurrect me. So it's even when he's claiming that it's not about him and Harry's unimportant, the subtext the whole time is it's all about Harry, which is why Harry has to be there and why Harry has to die. It's always something that confuses me about bullies with power is that often what they are preaching is, I don't care about this specific population, but by giving it so much attention, it's clear that they care a lot (laughs) about that population, just in a hateful way. And Voldemort just does so much of that rhetoric. And it, it again, to me, speaks of the fact that, like, he has no social capital, right? Like, he entirely rules by fear, Everybody immediately flipped sides, you know, except for the Lestranges. Imagine being like, I was so powerful, and yet you only have two loyal followers, right? Like, there were only two people who were actually willing to sacrifice themselves for you. Everybody was only tied to him for his power. There's a theorist and critic named Edward Said um, who has this really influential book called Orientalism, where he talks about the West's relationship to the East. He was talking about the ancient Near East, but it's true of the East in, in general. And what he says is like this weird paradox arises when the West imagines the East, that it has to imagine it as inferior to itself. 
but it also has to imagine it in order to build itself up as super powerful and great it has to imagine the east as like this this powerful force that unless we restrain it unless we overcome it will overcome us right and so like you have you have to have stories of the mongol hordes as like this terrible threat so you can build up your own strength and fighting them back right like the nature of the bully is you have to build up the one you antagonize in order to build up your own power and vanquishing them. And you could see that happening in this chapter, right? Like totally. Voldemort is talking about how he's going to defeat Harry, but also he has to build up this child as like this incredible imp- opponent to him. Like the only power that could defeat me is this child. But Harry's a child, right? So like Voldemort has to say, I'm going to defeat him, but he also has to convince the Death Eaters that Harry Potter, this 13-year-old, is the greatest threat to them that has ever been in the same breath. He has to do both things, which means he has to have Harry be both visible and invisible, both powerful and impowerful, both there and not there. And he's trying to balance that the whole time. Yeah, and he also does that with Dumbledore, right? Yeah. Voldemort cannot imagine a world in which his followers didn't start following and worshiping someone else. He, you know, he says to the Death Eaters there, by not coming to find me, it implies that you thought I was beaten and that you therefore thought that there was someone stronger than I am. And that must have been Albus Dumbledore. And the whole group is like, no, we didn't. But they also didn't, right? Dumbledore isn't going around saying, I defeated Voldemort. So Voldemort is creating this straw man in Dumbledore and is therefore giving Dumbledore more power than he actually has. You know, everybody just sort of abandoned having a leader in this way. And they were just like off living their lives as, you know, like animal executioners and, you know, bullies (laughs) of small girls and, you know, not great lives, but not organized lives. And again, I just find it so depressing how easy it is for a bully to ruin so much and how hard it is for like a a decent leader like Dumbledore who's actually not trying to acquire endless amounts of power to just like be good <laughs> or like try to be good out in the world. I think that's right, Vanessa. I also just want to call attention to like there are other people in this chapter who are made invisible by instrumentalization, right? Totally. Like, um, Bertha Jorkins is a tool in Voldemort's plan. Wormtail is, right? Like, in the same way that you think about the DMV encounter where the other person becomes an instrument of some other object for me. That's exactly what's going on, not just with Harry, but also with with others in this chapter. And even for the Death Eaters, I mean, Voldemort has no loyalty to every, any one of these Death Eaters, even the Lestranges. I mean, when it comes down to it, his only loyalty is to himself, and they are tools in his own project. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. 
From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Prose. Casper, I just got a wonderful, wonderful haircut. It looks so good. Thank you. I feel great with it. But I cut off over a foot of hair, and that means my long hair was sort of pulling my curls in one way. And now that I have short hair, I need a totally different hair care routine. Mm. Luckily, Pros is made for people, not hair and skin types. Personalization is rooted in everything they do, from their in-depth consultation to their made-to-order model. And so I used the review and refine feature, and I was like, yes, I still want vegan hair care products. Yes, I still want to smell like a lavender field, (laughs) but my hair is no longer long. It is short to medium length. Please send me a different formula of shampoo and conditioner. Pros is so confident that you'll bring out your best hair and skin that they're offering an exclusive trial offer of 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash Harry Potter. So you get your free consultation and then 50% off at pros.com slash Harry Potter. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash Harry Potter. Matt, the first place where we see this like immediate invisibility of Wormtail is as soon as Voldemort is embodied, right? Wormtail is like, sir, you promised to grow me a hand. Like, do it. And Voldemort is like, give me your arm. And Wormtail is like, cool, it's going to happen. The thing you promised is actually going to happen. And then Voldemort is like, no, your other arm. And he touches the dark mark and all of the Death Eaters come immediately. And that's interesting, right? Because we've seen signs that the dark mark is becoming more and more visible, right? There's that scene where Karkaroff comes into Snape's classroom in order to corner Snape and is like, it's becoming more visible on you too. But suddenly, it's more visible on everyone. And this thing that had become invisible became highly visible. It really does remind me of My grandparents, you know, they had number tattoos from Auschwitz. Three out of the four of them did. And when they were in Auschwitz, that tattoo was a symbol of their invisibility, right? That like they were just a number and they weren't even a name and everybody, all inmates had these tattoos. But when I was a child walking around with the two surviving grandparents who, you know, had the tattoos... You know, my grandma and grandpa had very different relationships with their tattoos. My grandma always kept hers covered. She always wore long sleeves. And, you know, I grew up in L.A. It can get very hot in L.A. And yet she just – it was really important to her to keep that covered in public. But my grandfather, he would wear short sleeves sort of with the weather, right? He wasn't, like, circling his tattoo and parading it around. But he had no shame around it, and it often made him very visible. I remember distinctly three times when I was with him, and somebody would essentially say to him, I know what that means. But, like, that was its own visibility and invisibility, too, right? Because he would become legible to them as a Holocaust survivor. But often the person would then just, like, 
make the situation about their emotional reaction to that. Yeah. It's like that thing we were saying before, like when you become visible in one way, sometimes that extreme visibility makes other parts of you invisible, right? Right. And I think that tension between visibility and invisibility is part of what we see in this chapter as the effect of Voldemort pressing upon Wormtail's dark mark because he presses on it. It becomes incredibly visible to Wormtail and to everybody else. What we imagine is happening is everyone who has the dark mark, that mark is becoming very visible on their arms as well. And they've been summoned, right? And this is interesting because when the Death Eaters show up, like they show up to show up. I mean, the the verb, the phrase we use, the idiom we use is one about visibility. You show yourself to somebody. They show up Uh, for Voldemort. They try to appear there and make themselves visible to him to say, yep, we are still with you. I know it seemed like we were kind of keeping a distance for a while, but we were just biding our time. Please don't crucio us. And they just show up. But like this, this anxiety to be visible to Voldemort, also carries with it this invisibility because they're all masked. Right. Like even in front of Voldemort, who knows who they are, they're all masked, right? And so they also want to kind of hide their identity in this fundamental way. They both want to show up and be visible to Voldemort to try to indicate to him that they are loyal to him. But even there, they cover their faces, they wear hoods. They try to be anonymous and remain invisible in fundamental ways too. And so that same tension is there, but for different reasons, right? They want to show forth this one thing and then set other parts of themselves behind for the sake of this very cruel relationship that they share with Voldemort. Yeah, I think one of the things about integrity, and this might be a definition of integrity to me, is always wanting sort of a healthy amount of visibility and invisibility. Hmm. Like understanding when something isn't about you and so you make yourself a little bit less visible or when you understand that, you know, it is on you so you step up and make yourself a little bit more visible. Or, you know, that I'm just thinking of that like line in Hamilton (laughs) where Hamilton decides to support Thomas Jefferson, who has different political beliefs than he does, rather than Aaron Burr, who just like was always a politician and never stood up for anything. And I don't know if you're a bad guy, stick with your stick with your convictions, right? Like I kind of respect the Lestranges more than Malfoy. The Lestranges are potentially more evil, but they are unmasked, right? Like they are staying yeah. visible in their support. And this just like going where the winds take you, to me, always belies the fact that you knew it was wrong all the time, right? If you want to be visible for something when it's in vogue, I kind of feel like you have to continue to want to be visible for it when it loses favor. Unless you've like learned something new, right? You're like, oh, you know, in that transfer of power, I've actually learned something and never mind, I was wrong. And you like go through some sort of like deep reconciliation process. But I hate that they're hooded. These freaking <laughs> cowards. But it's super, I mean, it's super consistent. We see totally. all kinds of terrorist groups cover their faces, try to remain anonymous. The KKK, right? right? Like famously. That's right. Absolutely. That's, yeah. Yeah. I think that this kind of tension between visibility and invisibility is one that carries to other Death Eaters or suspected Death Eaters. I can remember reading this chapter the first time and reading Voldemort refer to his faithful servant at Hogwarts, who is conspired to make all this possible, and thinking to myself, oh, it's got to be Snape, <laughs> right? Yeah. But it's, uh, you, we, we readers who have read beyond this know that it's actually not Snape. And so 
There's this idea, again, of visibility and invisibility. Snape has become very visible to us because of his cruelty towards children and his particular antipathy toward Harry. And so we are inclined to see what we want to see or to see that hint as pointing directly at him. But the truth is the faithful servant of Voldemort at Hogwarts is a person who remains invisible to us and invisible to Hogwarts because... Barty Crouch has been using Polyjuice Potion to look like Mad-Eye Moody. And so we do not see the actual faithful servant of Voldemort, but we think we see the faithful servant of Voldemort. And that's part of the deception. That's this strategic or tactical use of visibility and invisibility is part of what makes this plan work as well as it does. Yeah. Matt, it's now time for our spiritual practice, and this is our last secret imagination for a little while. We're going to be transitioning to the Four of Reliances, and you have picked a passage for us for today. I did, Vanessa. This is kind of a tricky chapter for me to find a passage from. As our listeners will remember, sacred imagination is a practice in which we try to really kind of inhabit the passage. We try to imagine ourselves into it very intimately to try to place ourselves within the scene, either as one of the narrated characters or as a fly on the wall or at some other imagined perspective. And we try to experience all the sensations, either bodily or emotional or whatever that might be going on as we read it. And actually, a lot of this chapter is dialogue. It's a lot of it is Voldemort just kind of talking about his plan and talking about what he was doing. I think the sacred imagination works better when there's a little bit more action and things going on so you can place yourself in the scene rather than just listen to someone talking. So the passage I selected comes from pretty early in the chapter, and it's just as the Death Eaters are arriving, and it's kind of the first encounter. It's this reunion between the Death Eaters and the revivified or resurrected Voldemort. So I'll start reading now. Still he paced, his red eyes darting from grave to grave. Listen to me, reliving family history, he said quietly. Why, I am growing quite sentimental. But look, Harry, my true family returns. The air was suddenly full of the swishing of cloaks. Between graves, behind the yew tree, in every shadowy space, wizards were apparating. All of them were hooded and masked. And one by one they moved forward, slowly cautiously, as though they could hardly believe their eyes. Voldemort stood in silence, waiting for them. Then one of the Death Eaters fell to his knees, crawled toward Voldemort, and kissed the hem of his black robes. Master, master, he murmured. The Death Eaters behind him did the same, each of them approaching Voldemort on his knees and kissing his robes, before backing away and standing up, forming a silent circle, which enclosed Tom Riddle's grave. Harry, Voldemort, and the sobbing and twitching heap that was Wormtail. Yet they left gaps in this circle, as though waiting for more people. Voldemort, however, did not seem to expect more. He looked around at the hooded faces, and though there was no wind, a rustling seemed to run around the circle, as though it had shivered. "'Welcome, Death Eaters,' said Voldemort quietly. Thirteen years, thirteen years since last we met.' Yet you answer my call as though it were yesterday. We are still united under the dark mark then. Or are we? He put back his terrible face and sniffed, his slit-like nostrils widening. I smell guilt, he said. There is a stench of guilt upon the air. 
So Vanessa, what sort of sensations or experiences did you have during the reading of that passage? I was very much like in Harry's point of view. So all of a sudden I felt like the cold, hard tombstone behind me. And like this kid, you know, we talked a little bit about this last week, but he still has like a broken ankle and is like tied to this stone and his scar hurts, right? And his friend has just died. And then like there all of these black hooded creatures arrive in this air moving, but noticing that there's no wind. You know, I always experience this like very tactily, like on my skin and all of the things that I would imagine he notices in his body and then he sort of leaves his body in order to just be like completely overwhelmed by what's happening around him and terrified and deeply, deeply confused. When I was training my, at the time, puppy, there was a photo in one of the training books of what humans look like to a puppy, just like how big and potentially scary we can look to them. And it showed a picture of like someone walking toward like something very low to the ground. And so like your foot, right? Like looks scary to a five pound puppy. And I'm just like imagining Harry as that, right? Like he's literally low to the ground and small and everybody is standing. And then this other person is on the ground at your level and like crying and bleeding, right? Like there's a ton of violence and sort of grossness happening next to him with Wormtail. And then there's also just this mad person. So yeah, that's, that is what I noticed. What about you, Matt? Yeah, one of the reasons I like sacred imagination is that narrative often really leans heavily into the visual just by the nature of description. It encourages us to try to to dwell with other sensations, the tactile that you were just talking about. This passage actually calls attention to some things besides the visual, right? There's the sound. There's a lot of rustling and swishing, yeah. right? Even though there's no wind, there are these cloaks, and we, we are invited to experience some of that sound. I was I was in Harry's position, too. And there's also this very rare in, in narrative invocation of scent, right? Voldemort says, I smell guilt. I don't know what that smells like. I didn't smell it. I had that same smell I had last chapter, which was kind of this musty, earthy smell, especially because he's, like you said, low to the ground. I'm guessing like that kind of metallic smell of blood is there because Wormtail's right next to him. And he, he, I mean, he lost a hand. He must be bleeding profusely, right? Like there's like, like that kind of damp, musty, earthy, metallic kind of mineral smell is all around. But interestingly, for me, it was really the visual that kind of came into, because Harry is trapped there because he can't move, and he's looking at the scene, that moment when it says, a shiver ran through the gathered people, I feel like I saw that. Like, I saw, like, almost like the scene was coming in and out of focus, or like, Mm -hmm. the people themselves, the Death Eaters themselves weren't shivering. But you know how sometimes when you're looking at something and your eyes don't focus right, or it almost looks like... Maybe it's more true in like when we're watching movies or something, when they, when you see that the image itself becomes unstable, right? Like, this is not real. This can't be real. And I, I want evidence of its unreality. I, I felt like the, just that shiver that ran through the gathered Death Eaters, I was able to kind of visualize that as this sort of ethereal, like almost bad VHS, <laughs> you know, bad VHS moment where like... Harry's trying to convince himself, like, is this actually happening? Yeah. And, and there are these other moments in the chapter when you can see Harry wishing, like, something else could 
just make the police come, please. Just right. something happen here that can break this up. Even though the police are going to be worthless against these folks, obviously, like Harry, just like this can't be real. Something has to happen. Something's different, and that shiver is almost like evidence both of its unreality and its reality. Yeah, that reminds me of real moments in my life too, right? Where you find mm. out a piece of news that's so shocking. Yeah, I know I've talked about this before, but you know when a close friend of mine died when I was in high school, I just like, I profoundly did not believe the person who told me and yet I was crying, right? And so like, these things can happen where your body, you know, somehow has like a very different reaction than your mind, right? Or um, you try, you know, or, you know, as a kid, we used to go like drive through the desert to, to get places. And mirages are so real, right? Like being like, oh, clearly that's a lake. And then arriving and being like, no, that's just more sand, (laughs) right? So our bodies do play tricks on us in this way that, yeah, just like trauma can do. Yeah. Well, thanks for picking this passage, Matt. Poor, poor Harry, man. Poor Harry. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It is now time for our voice memo, and this week's voicemail is from Karen. Hi, Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. My name is Karen, and I use she, her pronouns. I just wanted to leave a message about the most recent episode I listened to, which was Casper's Return, when we're talking about legacy. And in the Pardes, you were talking about serious being a parent and, you know, his, he's goofing around and joking about his adventures and then sees Harry's concern and then has to make that switch over to a parent. And I was struck by the thought that, you know, when he went to Azkaban, he wasn't really an adult. He was barely an adult. And now all of a sudden he's out and trying to be an adult when he doesn't really know how. He hasn't had the time to gather those experiences 
to be able to then pass that wisdom on to the next generation. So here he is basically the same age as, you know, the twins and trying to then still be a responsible godfather for Harry. So it it makes sense to me that Sirius would be more joking and goofing off and less serious, no pun intended, than what uh, a reasonable adult of the same age, chronological age, would be. And it just struck me how difficult it is to overcome that kind of developmentally arresting trauma. And it is trauma for Sirius. And how many of us experience, you know, a less overt, but still developmentally arresting trauma that we have difficulty coming back from or, you know, moving on from. And I just want us to recognize that these kinds of relationships where we expect one person to act a certain way, we can't do that unless we take into account who they are in total. And to expect Sirius, who went to Azkaban as barely an adult, to then come straight out of Azkaban and be a responsible adult, I don't think that's very fair. So I just wanted to get your guys' thought on that. I love the podcast, and thanks for what you do. Thanks for this voice memo, Karen. I, I think you're right in calling us to have some sympathy for for Sirius here and for, you know, he's he's deeply traumatized. I mean, sort of regardless of when it happened to him, but also because it happened to him when he was so young, his time in Azkaban is formative for him, and we shouldn't expect that he should have the social graces or even the social maturity and skills of of a person who had not survived that trauma. And so I think your question of fairness is a right one, but also I still do want to in- to call back to like he has responsibilities here, even though if they're difficult ones for him to live up to because of his trauma and those responsibilities are responsibilities because he has obligations to Harry and he has obligations to this child. And although Sirius may face more challenges in exercising that responsibility with care, it's still his responsibility. So I think you're right. Out of fairness, we have to consider everything you said about Sirius. But I also think he still has the same kind of obligations to Harry, despite the things he suffered. Yeah, Matt, to me, it's right like the difference between compassion for mistakes and expectations of what we should be striving to do. And I think that we can have a lot of compassion for all of the ways that Sirius messes up because we know about how hard his life has been and how much he has suffered. And yet, I think we can still have pretty high expectations of him and expect him to grow and live into this role. Of Harry's godfather. If not for his sake, for Harry's. right? Exactly, because Harry deserves the best godfather he can get. So, yeah, what we owe children, right? As we were talking about earlier in this episode, you know, children just have no power. (laughs) So I I feel like we do owe children quite a lot. And thank you so much, Karen, for that really generous reframing of Sirius. It is now time for us to remember members of our community who have been loved and lost. Geraldine, who is 83, 
a mother, a nana, and a voracious reader. Kristen Crumley Gorman, who was 19 months old, a beloved daughter and sister. Louise Campbell, who was 100, a mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, and coffee lover. Jeffrey Logifer, who was 67, a 45-year partner, caring, curious, and a connector. Shirley Rhodes, who is 93, a voracious reader with an infectious giggle. And Sophie Cohen, who is 102 and a beloved great aunt to Ariana Nettleman. May their memories be a blessing to us all. Matt, it's now time for us to bless a character from the chapter. Who would you like to bless? I'd like to bless Snape this week. Snape doesn't show up in the chapter except by implication, and the implication is a mistaken one. As we mentioned earlier, the faithful servant at Hogwarts, for the first-time reader, we just kind of naturally assume that it must be Snape, even though it's not. You know, Snape has been kind of a flat antagonist for most of these books so far, just the kind of person everybody loves to hate. And we have some reason to not like him. He's very unkind to Neville. He's cruel to the children. But he's become a pretty significant figure. Like, Voldemort's return complicates his life in pretty significant ways. And this moment, kind of his absence in this Death Eater circle, this is the beginning of kind of the rest of Snape's life and the end of Snape's life. And so I just wanted to bless him as we embark on that journey with him, this chapter. How about you, Vanessa? I'd like to bless Harry, I think for obvious reasons, just like this poor kid. And so I think I want to offer a blessing to children I think kids go through a lot. And we always say kids are resilient, and they are, but like that seems like a lot of pressure to put on them. And so I know that Harry is really resilient and is going to thrive in his life, but he shouldn't have to endure this. And kids shouldn't have to endure half the stuff we put them through. So a blessing to Harry and, you know, to people under the age of 18. Vanessa, next week we're going to be reading Book 4, Chapter 34, Priori Incantatum, through the theme of conspiracy. Can't wait, Matt. Everybody, today is your last day. If you are listening to this on May 26th to register for our summer camp, go to notsorryworks.com. You can get ad-free episodes on Apple Podcasts if you are listening to us there. And also, of course, you can leave us a review. We love it. This was a Not Sorry production. We are a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced by AJ Uramas, and our music is by Ivan Paisao and Nick Bull. We are distributed by Acast. We would like to thank Karen for her voicemail this week, Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Margaret H. Wilson, Nikki Zoltan, Hannah Rehack, Courtney Brown, Casper Trakyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. I find myself like selecting uh, selecting themes based upon etymologies I'm curious about. <laughs>
Oh, conspiracy. That's a great that reason. sounds really, what where does that come from? Conspiracy. I it's mean, from con- spirit. Oh, is it spirits, you think? I have n- oh. no conspiracy. No. Could be. We'll Could find be. out next week.